Please be seated. God, if you are out there, prove it to me. God, if you can hear this prayer, show me that you are real. Only God knows the countless number of times such prayers have been directed heavenward. In fact, I would suspect that pretty much every one of us here have prayed that prayer in some way or form at some time. Perhaps many times you have prayed such a prayer. God, if you're there, show me. Perhaps you've prayed that prayer very recently. On one level, I think it's a reasonable prayer. God is unseen. And we want some evidence, some proof that He is real. It is no virtue to trust in myths, to trust in baseless imagination. Real faith does not plant its feet in thin air. It puts no confidence in wishful thinking. It doesn't trust in a religious mirage. Real faith stands on solid ground. It rests in what is real. It rests in what is trustworthy. So I do not think God is offended by our natural desire to seek assurances of His presence and authority. I think on one level, it certainly is an evidence of weakness. He's in the room, after all. But yet, He is unseen, and He knows that we long for some assurance. I don't think He's offended by that. The problem comes when we demand that He reveals Himself on our terms. The problem comes when we set the parameters within which He must reveal Himself before we will trust Him. The God of the Bible rejoices to reveal Himself to us, but it is vital that we receive this revelation on His terms. Life and death hinges on our response. This is a reality we witness in a conversation between Jesus and members of the religious establishment in Israel during Jesus' ministry. And I'd I'd like us first to read this brief conversation recorded in Matthew's Gospel. You may find it there in chapter 12, verses 38 and following. We do have it on the screen here uh, just for today if you uh, do not have a Bible with you. But I'd like us to read this conversation together. And then, having done that, what I'd like to do is kind of take it as a gem and turn it and see it in different light to look at the historical context and to bring that context to bear upon this conversation. We won't bring maybe a lot of that with us, some more than others, but we'll we'll strive to understand its context. Then we'll work through it piece by piece before we bring to a a place of application. But let's first of all uh, read it together, and this will test your eyes, I suppose. Our formatting's a little off here, but... Uh, if we can read together or in the text of Scripture in your Bibles 
at Matthew chapter 12. Let's read in unison at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from You. But He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's consider then for a brief period of time here the context of Jesus' ministry. I think this is really significant to understanding the conversation. The first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry a a three-and-a-half-year public ministry, were mostly spent around the Sea of Galilee. You see there at the top of the screen on the right. In close proximity to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, which is also indicated there. He was stationed particularly, primarily, at Capernaum, but he worked around this Sea of Galilee, a 13-mile-long lake, and various communities positioned around it. And for strategic purposes, he spent a good portion of time here in this region performing miracles and teaching God's Word. All of this demonstrating that he was Israel's long-promised Messiah. This was his intention to present himself to Israel during this period of time. And during this time, Jesus' popularity skyrocketed. The adoration of the crowds, he understood, was shallow. It was fickle. At best, the people were disinterested in heeding Jesus' call to repentance and righteousness. But Jesus did get their attention. And he was wildly popular at this point in time. And by this point in time, everyone had heard about Jesus throughout the nation. That's why we have religious leaders here coming up to Galilee making the long journey northward to find out who this prophet was. What was he saying? What was he doing? But as his popularity rose during this period, the jealousy and the bitter hatred of the religious establishment toward Jesus grew to a fever pitch. We realize that here in Matthew chapter 12. Much has taken place now in Jesus' ministry, but there is a thoroughgoing rejection of who He is. Notice chapter 12 and verse 14, if there's any question about it. The Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. Because of His healing, because of His teaching, they want Him dead. Chapter 12 and verse 24, after Jesus has healed a demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute, we read in verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So some time has passed. The demonstration is clear. But the leaders of Israel want Jesus dead. Can he perform miracles? Yes, there's nothing they can say about that. But he does it by the power of Satan. That's the position to which they have come. 
We see the point then in the conversation before us. When the scribes and Pharisees now say in verse 38, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, what are they saying? Jesus has been openly performing miracles for two and a half years. And they have thoroughly rejected Him. Adults born blind had received their sight. Those who could not hear were made to hear. Paralyzed people had jumped off their beds and walked home. The chronically ill and diseased had been restored to full life. And Jesus had even raised the dead. And they come to Him and say, Show us a sign. Despite all that Jesus had done to demonstrate His divine power, the religious leaders demand something more. On their terms. That's the ministry of Jesus in the context of this conversation. There's one other line as we pick this text up, this conversation up, and look at it from another angle. Another line of thought, and that is the ministry of Jonah. The people of Jesus' day knew full well, which we probably don't, but as is indicated here on this map, that Jonah was from the village of Gath-Hefer. Jesus is born in Nazareth. You can see there on the map where that is. Jonah, an ancient prophet, was born in Gath-Hefer. You could walk between the towns. A fairly short journey, particularly for that day, you could walk between the two villages. Now they knew that. They knew Jonah was a Galilean prophet. There weren't many prophets from Galilee, but Jonah was one. Jesus' hearers were also well aware that Jonah rebelled against God's call to proclaim salvation to the vicious Assyrians at the chief city of Nineveh. So God called Jonah to go in that direction, northward and eastward, to Assyria, and to proclaim at its chief city, Nineveh, repentance. What did Jonah do? He got on a ship at Joppa and he went the other direction, to Spain. The Israelites knew all of this. They knew this history almost intuitively. They knew where Jonah lived. They, know, they knew where Joppa was. They knew the direction that he took. They knew of his rebellion. Three weeks ago, Beth and I were walking through Joppa. And this was unplanned. We were completely on our own ahead of our trip. And uh, we're just poking around Joppa. And there in the center of the village was a bronze statue of guess what? A big fish. No kidding. Right in the middle of Joppa this day. The Israelites still know what happened to Jonah. That he was swallowed, thrown from this ship because of God's discipline into the sea and swallowed by a great fish. And he rode around apparently, or at least possibly, in the lung of that fish for three days and three nights. And then Jonah was mercifully vomited out by that fish onto dry land and his life was spared. 
So as the Israelites, as, as they understand their history, they know who Jonah is, they bring with them to this context this entire story. And we have, just to trace out a unique line here, we have two Galilean prophets then. Young men who lived very close to one another, though, of course, Jonah quite a time quite a bit preceding Jesus. But think of it, Jonah's disobedience to God's word riled the sea, which was stilled when he was roused from sleep, rebuked by the sailors, and thrown overboard. Jesus also slept on a storm-tossed sea. Sleeping in the boat, being roused, he rebuked the storm, and the sea was stilled. And the text of Scripture says that in both instances, those that were with these two prophets in the boat were more frightened by the still calm of the sea than they ever were by its tempestuous storm. Jesus is a greater Jonah. Now the Israelites who are talking to him understand all about Jonah. They don't know about this Jesus. And they're here poking around to figure out really and ultimately how they can kill him. Because they don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he's doing. He's taking away attention from them and they don't like him. So they bring all of this background to this conversation and let's work our way then through it a little more uh, patiently as we work through the text. First of all, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. How do we understand that? The scribes were professional scholars who copied, studied, and interpreted the Mosaic Law. They held an esteemed position in Israel, serving as custodians of Jewish law and tradition. And then there were the Pharisees. Their focus of life was to keep the law. And they did a good deal of interpretation themselves, but they found ways to put a hedge around the law, that is, they overkept it, so that no one would break the law. And they saw themselves, in fact, prided themselves on being devout people who would evidence to Israel how you keep the law of God. Deeply devout religious people. Together, these Israelite leaders request a sign from Jesus. That is, they want to witness a miraculous token that will prove once and for all that Jesus is Messiah. It's probable that these men had never personally witnessed one of Jesus' miracles. We don't know for sure, but let's give them that credit. Let's say they've not personally witnessed such a miracle, but Jesus could have snapped his fingers and drained the Sea of Galilee right in front of their eyes, and they still would not have believed. They had hard hearts that sought not to believe, and that's what's behind this request. Show us a sign. Discerning their situation, Jesus says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I mean, Jesus simply says, no, I won't do it. I'm not going to give you a sign. In fact, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. How do you read that? 
I, I don't think he's talking about sexual adultery, although that would certainly be included. But it's a common metaphor used by the prophets of Israel to speak of Israel's unfaithfulness, her spiritual adultery. Israel had broken covenant with God and that was evidenced by her rejecting Jesus. So he calls them an adulterous generation seeking for a sign. Now Jesus actually, in fact, in some sense, does grant their request. He says no sign will be given it except it's not necessarily evil to seek a sign as such. Their seeking of a sign was evil, but Jesus does give them one. He's not going to snap his fingers and drain the Sea of Galilee. He's not going to cause the sun to dance in the sky. But he says, I will give you a sign. There is a sign for you. And that sign, it, this, this just had to shock them. It had to stun them. The sign is Jonah. Jonah? What on earth has he got to do with this? Jesus refuses to feed their unfaithful hearts, but he does give them the sign of Jonah. He claims that the prophet Jonah was himself a sign, a miraculous pointer to Messiah. How is that? Having certainly secured their attention, he says, for, verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let's get a couple of ideas just off the point of consideration quickly here, but the great fish could be translated sea monster. It's not necessarily a whale. It's not necessarily a shark. We don't know. It could be either one. It just means sea monster in a very generic sense. And the belly doesn't mean in the stomach. That the Greek word simply means in the body cavity. Somewhere inside the creature, we do know historically that there have been individuals swallowed by a whale, swallowed by a shark that have found life in the lungs of that creature. Perhaps that's what happens with Jonah. It doesn't really ultimately matter. The text of Scripture doesn't chase that. All it's saying is that he is encompassed in this fish. And Jesus prophesies, and this is the point, that he will be buried for three days and three nights in the earth as Jonah was, so to speak, buried in the fish. And like Jonah, Jesus says, I will be delivered. So the sign that you're looking for, I will give this to you, I will die, I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the chronologically oriented among us might be asking the question, wait a minute, how could Jesus be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Didn't he die on Friday? Isn't that what we call Good Friday, the day that Jesus died? And did he not rise in the morning of Saturday, or of Sunday? What we need to understand is this phrase, three days and three nights, is a Hebrew idiom. It's used outside of the Bible this way. And I think then it is certainly used here in the Bible this way to speak of any part of three days. 
It's not three full days and three full nights, but it's simply any part of three days and three nights. It was a figure of speech we don't have in our language, but which they employed. Jesus was in the heart of the earth for part of three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as we know them today. So Jonah's burial in the sea typifies or foreshadows, in a sense, Jesus' deliverance from death. And Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave is all the sign anyone would ever need to identify Him as Messiah. As God's one-of-a-kind deliverer. There are many proofs that Jesus rose from the dead, and we could chase them all afternoon. The method of Roman crucifixion is one of the strong evidences of Jesus' resurrection. It's certainly an evidence that he was dead and buried. You know what happened to a Roman soldier? If they brought a supposedly dead man off a cross, brought that cross down, brought that body off of the cross, and on the ground there was a hint of breath left in that man, one last gasp, if that happened every soldier that participated in that crucifixion was crucified immediately. Rome had a way of dealing with things that nobody messed with. The spear in the side, bringing the body down, there was no question Jesus was dead. And you know what happened when they sealed the tomb? That is, the governor would put his seal through some representative on this tomb, if that seal was broken, every soldier guarding that tomb was immediately executed. We have a spear in Jesus' side. We have a sealed tomb guarded by Roman soldiers and yet a missing body and no soldier dies. We have the evidence of the fear of the disciples cowering, afraid, huddling together, entirely discouraged. And then, in just a short matter of time, a boldness and a courage that comes from them that takes them right through to execution themselves. Somewhere along the line, with this myth, somebody's going to say, it's a lie. But they lay down their lives, suddenly now thoroughly filled with courage and hope. We have the appearances of Jesus to individuals, to small groups of people, and in one place to 500 or so at one time. We could go on and on with the evidences of Jesus' resurrection, but I think standing tall among all of these evidences is the fact that during His life, Jesus said, I am going to die and I will rise again on the third day. Here, we have him saying that in a fairly subtle way. Jonah was in the belly of the fish, in the cavity of this sea monster, three days and three nights. I will be in the earth three days and three nights. A clear reference to burial. But when we come to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 17, and Matthew chapter 20, Jesus will pointedly tell his disciples that he will be executed buried, and will rise on the third day. He tells them this will happen. They will kill me, but I will rise again. And who makes such claims? 
It was so radical, so strange. I think Jesus said a lot of things the disciples didn't catch. They seemed really odd to them. This is one of them. After he rises from the dead, it takes them a while to say, you know what, he did say that. So I'll give you this sign. I will be three days and three nights. I will be a portion of three days in the heart of the earth. Which assumes his resurrection implicitly. Because the period in the heart of the earth ends at three days and three nights. Verse 41 The men of Nineveh will rise up then at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. After Jonah was spit out onto land by the sea monster, he made the journey northeast to Nineveh. He preached to the Ninevites, the hated enemies of Israel. We remember the Ninevites were a godless, wicked, and unusually cruel people. They had caused Israel all kinds of misery. But when Jonah called them to repentance, they obeyed in a stunning turn of events. They they turned to God, and the destruction God threatened was delayed for 150 years. That generation repented. And that generation of Gentile Ninevites would, Jesus prophesied, stand in judgment of this generation of God's chosen people because they had rejected Him the greater Jonah. Hendrickson says, less enlightened people obeyed less enlightened preaching. Jesus' hearers were rejecting the light of the world. And something greater than Jonah is here. The Greek text reads, behold, a greater Jonah is here. Now we may need to fill in the word something, but... Jonah was the sign himself to the Ninevites, and they responded to that sign. I believe, I can't prove this, but I believe that one of the reasons the Ninevites responded was because word preceded Jonah about what had happened to him. Knowing that world, knowing the way that communication worked, I think there is no question that the news of what had happened to him preceded him. The Ninevites saw Jonah freshly delivered from the fish and they repented. They turned from their sin and they submitted to God's call upon their life. And when Jesus emerges from the jaws of death, the only rational and safe response is repentance from sin and total trust in His name. There is no other response. And that day came in fairly short order, just as Jesus prophesied. On one level or another, in one way or another, we have all probably prayed something like this. God, if you are there, prove it to me. Show me. This text of Scripture mercifully demonstrates to all of us that God has proven it. It mercifully informs us that God's chosen means of authenticating His presence and His power on this side of the cross is the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. 
so the question is for us and for you, is that enough? Is that enough for you? Or do you need something better? Conceived in the womb of a virgin, born in the village of Bethlehem as the prophets had foretold. Jesus of Nazareth announced numerous times, I will be executed, I will be buried, and I will rise on the third day. If the vile Ninevites fell on their faces in repentant response to Jonah's preaching after his deliverance from the sea, the only sane response to Jesus' resurrection from the dead is repentant belief. And these hypocritical enemies of Jesus were willing to accept what happened to Jonah, but they reject what will happen to Christ. It is by the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth that God authenticates Jesus' mission, that He proves His power to save. The resurrection of Jesus then is not a fictional story that we're meant to, that, that's intended to help us appreciate our heritage. There are myths like that. Fictional stories that help us appreciate who we are. They kind of give us roots in a particular culture. They help us see life a certain way. Nobody really believes they're real, but they do have a way of forming thought. That's not what this is about. Nor is the resurrection of Christ a factual account intended to merely fascinate us. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is a reality that gives life to those who believe. There is in this message life. And make no mistake, it is a reality that damns those who reject it. That's what Jesus is saying. If the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not proof enough for you then, nothing would be proof enough for you. Nothing. Because it's really not proof that you seek. What you seek is justification for a hard heart that resists turning from your sin and submitting to God. The evidence is here. Jesus defeated death. That is God's proof. We gather this Lord's Day as we do the first day of every week to declare that Jesus Christ is risen bodily, historically. In reality, He lives today. In doing so, we celebrate more than a miracle. It is that. But we celebrate more than a miracle. This event is a vital piece of a larger message that the eternal Son of God took on flesh as fully God and fully man lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to His Father's will, fulfilling God's law. This event is the, confer the confirming piece of the larger message that Jesus died in the place of sinners to pay the price of our sin. And having paid that penalty for us, having been crucified as the Lamb of sacrifice in our place, 
Jesus arose from the dead. And only in this way can we find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Only by this means. The resurrection of Christ then, the resurrection of this greater Jonah from the realm of death is more than proof that God exists. It is indeed the message of life for all who believe. It is the ground and the source of our eternal life. And so we come this day with rejoicing. With the songs of the choir and the songs of this congregation, with the words that have been announced in this place, we gather here on this day to say, Christ is risen. And in this we place our hope. And we gather again next Lord's Day as He gives us life to do the very same thing. To continue to announce Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That's what this day is for the gathered church. But perhaps this day is for you the day of repentance. A day when you quit demanding of God that He prove Himself real. And a day when you turn from your sin and embrace Christ crucified in your place and risen with life. Is, that, is this the day? Is that where you are? What a great day this could be. A greater Jonah has come. And his salvation is rich. It is free. It is eternal. And it is infinitely satisfying. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we ask of You, by Your Spirit, to do a unique work within each of us to confirm in our soul the reality of Christ's resurrection and its importance. And for those who are separated from Christ, who have no sense that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ who don't know what it means to be in Christ. I pray that You would open their eyes. I pray that You would lead them to belief, guide them to turn away from their disbelief. Thank You for Jesus crucified and risen. We rejoice in this truth. 